Welcome to the Breaking Through in Cybersecurity Marketing podcast, where we explore the hottest topics in cyber marketing, interview experts, and help you become a better cybersecurity marketer. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another hot episode of Breaking Through in Cybersecurity Marketing. I'm one of your hosts, Maria Velasquez. Joining me today is my trusty co-host, Gianna Whitfer. And today, our guest is going to be a very interesting one, a really awesome story. Can't wait to get into it. Today, we're joined by Dylan Townsell. He is currently head of public relations at Armis, but specifically, your title, I think, is Senior Director of Public and Media Relations at Armis. Dylan, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. We can't wait to hear your story. Let's get right into it. Tell us about you, how you got here. Sure. My journey was confusing to me, especially at times uh, when I didn't (laughs) think that I was heading in the right direction. I made some very interesting changes along the way and just kind of got tired of doing one thing and wanted to do another. And then uh, I was kind of concerned that, you know, five years of, of experience in some field wasn't going to translate later. And I went through all of these different career changes and found out that in cybersecurity marketing, they came in extraordinarily handy. The skill sets that I picked up along the way, they're definitely strengths that have helped me make great teams and produce results. So I guess my journey and and the tale I'm going to tell is there are many different paths to get into cybersecurity marketing and don't feel like they're wrong as you're doing them because they can always turn out very well in the end. Yeah, I mean, I, I made the joke on our quick intro call earlier that all college majors are welcome. Myself came from political science in undergrad, and then how do you get here? I'm pretty sure a lot of people have that similar journey and story. Yeah. A lot of people just trip and fall into it, I think. Seriously. <laughs> but it, it's actually really interesting when you do have this technical background in cybersecurity marketing. Tell us a little bit about that, Dylan. So the technical part came a little bit toward the middle, but I need to back up to the start. So when I left high school, I was a musician and I'd been a musician since I was 10. And I decided I wanted to open a recording studio. And I found someone in Los Angeles and he was a former musician. He had the means to create a recording studio. I had the technical knowledge from just being a lifelong geek. Together, we built a a recording studio and became very successful and actually opened a satellite studio in Colorado. He passed away after a few years, and I decided that I wanted a career change. And so I made my first switch and decided to go into retail sales. And so most people remember Fry's Electronics, especially on the West Coast. It was, you know, the huge big box retailer where you could go in and buy anything from little individual parts for your computer to, you know, full TV sets and everything. I became a salesman, eventually got promoted and became the department manager and had 65 employees. And I was running these, you know, sales teams that became insane. I was working like 70 hours a week, 25 years old and losing my mind and probably some of my hair, decided I needed a change. And so after I think three and a half years of doing retail sales, I made the next craziest decision that I, <laughs> I made. I decided to join the military. I was actually going to talk to the Air Force guys and they didn't show up at the office and the army guys were like, hey, do you want to come inside? It's really hot out here. I'm like, yeah, sure. I'll wait with you guys. While I was there, they started talking to me. I was going to go into military intelligence because I thought that was the most interesting field. And they started pulling out the list of different jobs they had available and the different bonuses that were available with those. Top of the list was combat journalist. So 
I was like, this is interesting. Like I've got the recording background, so I know how to operate all of the software and everything required for this job already. Talk to me about combat journalists. What is that? They're like, oh, you could be a television host. You can be a radio DJ. You could be public affairs, you know, all of these different ways that the career can go. I did the voice audition for it. They didn't know that I was from Alabama because I lost my accent somewhere along the way. Um, mm-hmm. I was told later that if they knew I was from Alabama, I would have never got that job. So, <laughs> Wow. I feel like that's a little Alabamian prejudice there. Like- yeah, a little bit. But I, I'd been living in L.A. and Chicago for a while. And so I picked up that you know non-regional dialect. So I signed up with the Army for five years. I went through basic training and did the defense information school out at Fort Meade in Maryland. Learned how to do audio and video broadcasting writing press releases, writing stories, doing you know, public affairs work with government agencies, all of that stuff. It was a crash course in a lot of different fields. So coming out of that, uh, <laughs> it was, I think, toward the end of my training in defense information school, one of the instructors walked in and we had orders to go to different places. I think I was going to Fort Hood, which is you know a big, boring military base here in Texas, where I now live. But they came in and said, we're looking for someone to go fill a position in Egypt as a radio DJ for one year. And we're going to start with whoever has the highest grade in the class and work our way down until someone accepts the position. And I just raised my hand. I was like, I'll take it. And so um, (laughs) by the end of the day, I was working on getting my visa and all of that, my passport and my shots to go to Egypt. And then I spent the next year hosting a radio show for two hours a day and then running back and forth between Tel Aviv and Cairo with different diplomats and generals and escorting them around writing stories and doing, you know, video and print stuff. And so that was fun. You know, I came back to America after a year and the same commander I had, he asked me if I wanted to come to his new unit. And I said, sure. He was a great boss. We had a great, you know, working relationship. And so we created this unit of 20 journalists. It was called a mobile public affairs detachment. Wow. So 20 journalists all in the same unit, nobody else, just a couple of officers to make sure things go right. And the rest of us were all print and broadcast journalists we found out that we were going to Afghanistan. And so we were preparing for that. And I was like, oh, this is different from Egypt, right? So we went to Afghanistan for a year. I was basically going out and doing video stories, running out to different units and seeing what they were doing, telling you know different soldier stories and meet the soldier, meet the airman, meet the, you know, the sailor, showing all the hearts and minds things that we were working on in, in Afghanistan. That was tough at times, right? I was out like by myself, lugging around camera gear for like, you know, four or five days at a time. I learned a lot getting stories out of people and just going out and like, you've never met this person before. And your goal is to go out, meet some 21 year old kid from Oklahoma and find out what's interesting about, you know, maintaining a Humvee or, you know, working on military equipment, pulling those stories out of people. And so at the same time, since we were a 20 person unit, everyone had a secondary job because we had to be self-sustaining. We couldn't rely on other units. And so some people were like in charge of the weapons. Some people were in charge of the supplies and logistics. And they found out that I had a tech background and they made me the network security manager. And so I was (laughs) at the same time I was doing broadcast journalism. I was also being trained by the DOD on network security. I decided this is a good time to get a degree. I mean, I'm in the military. They're going to pay for it. They're already training me on all of this stuff. I might as well. So I ended up getting my computer science degree while I was in. When my five years was coming up, I played with the idea of re-enlisting and looked at different job opportunities they had and ultimately decided I wanted to be a civilian again, just because, you know, the military is tough and I didn't, I didn't really want to risk another deployment. I've been very lucky, you know, kind of used up my nine lives. And so I decided to get out and go into civilian PR because I had the journalism side and I had the security side. I didn't want to be hands-on security because that was grueling. 
And journalism back in 2011 and 12 was kind of a dying industry. There were a lot of layoffs in newsrooms and I, I didn't want to go into journalism out of the fear that it wouldn't be lucrative, right? And so I kind of split the middle and decided to go into security PR. And so this is around 2012. I went to work for Porter Novelli and started working on enterprise tech and security accounts. Worked with them for a few years and decided I wanted to try in-house experience. And so I decided to go in-house with a company called Trustwave in Chicago. I did that for six months. They've been acquired by a larger conglomerate out of Singapore. So I basically got them through the transition. And then living in Chicago, I found out that I was going to have twins. And so (laughs) my mother and I decided we did not want to raise babies in Chicago. The idea of pushing a double stroller through snow just scared us to death. We relocated to Texas again. Uh, Her family was here. And so we moved back to Austin and I have twin six-year-old boys now. That's been fun raising six-year-olds and and trying to be a senior executive and keeping all of that straight. I love the experience of being a father and that's been incredible trying to watch them grow up and capture everything and be there as well as, you know, trying to escalate a security career, right? So I did a few months at Trustwave. IBM Security had asked me you know, a few months prior, I talked to a guy. He was interested in bringing me onto his team, but he didn't have the headcount. And so when I decided to leave Trustwave and go back to Texas, I called him up and I said, hey, Michael, what's the deal with your team? Did you, did you get authorization? And he's like, man, you have great timing. He's like, I literally got it this morning. It's meant to be. And so I was like, all right, well, here's the deal, man. I'm having kids. I'm relocating to Texas. I need to work remotely. And he's like, perfect. This is great. He's like, I'm going to send you a job link this afternoon. Great. So I <laughs> started working for IBM Security, went to do my training, came back, was in Texas, and the kids were born six weeks early. I called my boss and I was like, hey, um, that paternity leave, it's starting now, like tonight. <laughs> so fast and furious entry to IBM Security. But when I came back from paternity leave, it was a team of three other people and I was the new guy. And so they were throwing whatever new projects came up my way. And it happened to be wonderful timing once again, because IBM had just started this group called X-Force Red. And X-Force Red does penetration testing, ethical hacking, you know, vulnerability research, all kinds of fun stuff. The problem <laughs> is that IBM is a very conservative company when it comes to how they communicate. And this is a group that was going out to find vulnerabilities in major companies. And we had to you know, convince IBM that this was a good idea. The running joke was everyone is an IBM customer. That's real. And so every time we would do vulnerability research, we were you know, running up against the chance that we were going to disclose something against someone who worked with IBM you know, in some capacity. And so there was a lot of trust building that went on there. And IBM security and IBM at large eventually realized that you know, we were getting a ton of media coverage for things like hacking into cars or showing vulnerabilities in sensors that are in nuclear power plants and hydroelectric dams and things like that. And so over the course of three and a half years with them, it was like, slowly convincing them that, you know, hey, security research is good. This is great visibility for us, right? And so the head of Xforce Red is a guy named Charles Henderson. He's amazing. Uh, he's also in Texas here. So I would, you know, go to his house and we would talk about what we wanted to work on and sit on the golf course and, and just work on vulnerability research. So that was a, a fun time because I got to learn not only the Xforce Red stuff, but I was also running comms for other parts of IBM security, mm-hmm. including like some of their mobile device management. Trustier, which is their group based out of Israel that they acquired. So it was a lot of different stuff that was going on. And Watson, of course, was you know huge at that time because it was it was new. Everyone wanted to use Watson and AI and security. And so I think IBM security was probably my crash course. Um, that was when I got the most exposure to the most diverse set of 
security projects that are out there because IBM security works on everything. And so the possibilities were endless. What time period were you at IBM? My kids were born in 2016. So I started with IBM in June of 2016 and I was there for three years. We missed each other. I left in end of 2015. So (laughs) I was waving to you as you were coming in. It's funny because, you know, in security and marketing, you run into people and they're like, oh yeah, I was at IBM. So everyone I think does a tour of duty at IBM. I make the joke that I've worked for the two most bureaucratic organizations in the world, the DOD and IBM. So Maria's making a face. <laughs> we could say that because we work there. So yeah. yeah, cool. yeah. <laughs> Dylan, you said something earlier when you were doing your meet the team uh, boots on the ground, literally. <laughs> and I think that was Afghanistan, not Egypt. Right. And you said that you had to sort of adjust and figure out how to get your story from your guests. And I feel like we do that a lot. And well, we have to do that a lot in marketing because we have to understand and figure out not only how do we get the story from our current customers. And I know that that's a a big challenge in security, but how do we adjust our messaging and our story based on the audience? How did you do that on the fly in, in a conflict zone in a foreign country? Yeah, it was two sides of it, right? So I was doing media training for military leaders and teaching them how to be on camera and how to you know, come across effectively and, and not say the wrong thing about what was going on in Afghanistan. So I was training the senior leadership then and having to pull things out of them that they wanted to talk about and then reshape it. But I was also going out and meeting the most junior folks in the military and telling their stories, right? And a lot of the times I would be sent out to some random port operating base in Afghanistan with no clear mission. And it was just like, hey, come back with three stories. Okay. We're sending you out for a week. Bring us back three stories. And so then I would have to go and start talking to people and, you know, making friends and figuring out who was the most interesting person in the unit and start convincing them that they should be on camera. And that was tough because you had to do this within like 24 hours, basically. You had to learn everything about them that you wanted to tell in the story. You had to figure out how you were going to tell the story. You had to convince them that they should be a part of the story and then produce it and upload it to a satellite. And so this was like just over and over, rinse and repeat, pushed out like, I don't know, 120 stories or something while I was in Afghanistan in that year. It was great because it gave me the skill set of being able to quickly get to whatever the the actual meat of the story is, right? Like, why are we here? Why am I talking to you? And so now with spokespeople, that's incredible. Like having that skill set is is great because you can go and talk to someone and put them at ease and, and convince them that their story is worthwhile and get them comfortable about telling it. And the technical side of it, now that I work in security marketing, I have that computer science background. I have the security background. And so when I talk to a CTO or a CISO or someone who's like working on engineering, I speak their language. And so I can help them like translate the geeky stuff they're working on into human stories. And that was one that when I got to IBM, you know, IBM is huge. They have the massive projects and, and it's very enterprise and corporate. What we had to do, especially when we were doing, you know, the stuff with X-Force Red, we had to take those stories and figure out why is this important to the average person? Why would my grandmother care about this piece of security research? Right. And so it was always about finding the human element and being able to tell that side of security because everything we do is eventually protecting regular citizens, right? So all of this stuff trickles down to them, but it's not something that you can easily explain. Like if you're talking about, you know, your car is vulnerable because the app that you have is still connected to the car, even if you sold it to someone else, now they can they can basically unlock your doors from the other side of the country. This is why you should care about this research. 
And so that's very handy because now it's like every security story that we encounter, it's like, okay, well, what's the human element? What are we looking for? What are we doing aside from being self-serving in our security stories? And now we'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors and producers, Hacker Valley Media. Chris Cochran and Ron Eddings run an amazing studio here, which produces not only the Breaking Through in Cybersecurity Marketing podcast, but a bunch of other shows that you're going to want to listen to as well. So all these shows plus more, and then on top of that, probably even more coming soon, are available to look at, listen to, and sponsor at HackerValley.com. Make sure you go over there and say, hey, Gianna and Maria said I should come check out your website, listen to your shows, and sponsor a podcast or two. Yeah, love that. So one more question for you on what you mentioned. You did broadcasting, you did video, but you also did print. And this is probably a bad question for, you know, a journalist at heart, right? Uh, But where do you see print actually fitting in today's cybersecurity marketing? So I was primarily broadcast. I was obviously writing my stories and scripting them out and everything, but those were always conveyed over video or radio. Yeah. But occasionally I did print. I tried to stay away from it because it just wasn't my passion. But I mean, in our world, telling a story in print is absolutely necessary, right? We have to get our commentary and thought leadership into those articles and making the business press understand why security is important. So our security spend doesn't get cut year over year. That's kind of the focus, I think. The print side, (laughs) I don't want to say anything bad about it. I didn't like doing it personally. You can say print is dead. It's fine. No, I'm kidding. Uh, kidding. I (laughs) I mean, I spend like, I would say 80% of my time reviewing and copy editing things. And, you know, I'm kind of like the clearinghouse for my current company, Armis, of being the copy editor. And another weird tie is that my mother is an author. She's been an educator for, I don't know, 30 something years. She's also a writer and she's published everything from cookbooks to, you know, teaching manuals and all kinds of other stuff. You'll have to send us those links. We're going to put them in the show notes. We're going to put your mother's (laughs) books in. I'm sure she'll she'll be fine with that. I started (laughs) copy editing her stuff when I was still a teenager and she will still send me stuff to edit. And so copy editing thing, again, a weird thing that I just picked up comes in super handy when I'm reviewing press releases that were drafted by another company or scripts for a video that we're doing or whatever. So again, those little things that you don't think are going to matter in the end come back and you're like, oh my God, that's that's really nice to have. For sure. Dylan, excuse me while I send you our latest press release to uh, take a look at. <laughs> Well, I have a question on what you've already discussed, Dylan, which is, okay, so radio station for the military in Cairo, right? It was actually out in the Sinai Peninsula. So we were about 17 kilometers south of Tel Aviv in the middle of nowhere. Okay. So in the middle of nowhere, what was the top song you played (laughs) during your year in Egypt? Oh God, there were so many because I took requests and on that base, we only had about 1100 people, but they were from 12 different countries. And so I would get requests in multiple different languages to play on the show. It was dangerous because I didn't speak every language and I couldn't really vet the songs. And there were occasions where I would get requests for songs and play them. And someone would come running into my office screaming, you can't play that. That's vulgar, blah, blah, blah. And so (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't know, like it's hard because I I don't remember all of the songs. I would get these CDs sent to me from this company that the military used. And it was basically like the top hits of the week. And so I would just put them into rotation and it was easy to put together a radio show because they would literally send me like whatever was playing back in the States. Then all I had to do was listen to him a couple of times and make sure I knew the the facts and throw in some little tidbits about the artist or whatever. And that was my radio show. 
Did you have a catchphrase? You know, like, hello, oh, Egypt. God. I did, but I don't remember it. That was, that was no. so long ago. You have to. <sighs> if I remember it, I will, I'll throw it back in. There was, okay. I think we called our radio station the heat. So there were always like jokes about the, That's know, funny. the heat or whatever. Cause you know, it was Egypt. It was always sandstorms and, and 110 degree weather. So yeah, we named it the heat because it just you know, it made sense. Love that. I was going to say, did you play, what's that song? Is it walk like an Egyptian or dance like <laughs> I don't know that I ever played that one, actually. <laughs> That's awesome. What an awesome story and journey. So for those of us who are just getting into cybersecurity marketing or have been in it, but strive to either get better at copywriting or get better at writing, or maybe learn the technicals, at least the one-on-ones, <laughs> we're not going to go out and get a computer science degree. What is some advice, some resources that you found very helpful? Or what can we literally go today to improve on some of those skills? This kind of is it's a natural transition because when I left IBM Security, I was actually trying to run away from security and get back more into enterprise tech. I left IBM Security and went to Edelman and I was working on AMD, which is the you know processor manufacturer. And so AMD baby. Thrown into GameStop. a few other enterprise tech accounts and I was doing great. I was successfully getting away from security. And then one day I mentioned something and one of my bosses said, oh, would you be able to like dump some of this work and work on cybersecurity for us? We need people who know this. And there was like this crushing feeling came along. He's like, oh my God, I made it three months out of security and you know, they're pulling me in, right? And so I started working on some of the accounts and within a very short period, one of the big bosses came and he's like, hey, would you be able to stand up a, a formal security practice here at Edelman? Because they had kind of, you know, a loose group of people that were already working on accounts, but they were still bundled in the tech sector. So they wanted more of a focus. They wanted to create a proper practice. And um, I was like, you know, sighing internally, but yeah, sure, man, I'll, I'll do it. And so I think I did three and a half years at Edelman. Three of them were setting up their cybersecurity practice and bringing in people who either had some security background or had none at all. The question you asked about how do you start learning this stuff and getting immersed in it? My boss asked me like, what are you looking for when you build this team? I said, I'm not looking for people with security experience. I need people who have curiosity and passion. That's it. I can teach them the rest. I just need someone who wants to work in cybersecurity and wants to learn this stuff and can go do their own independent research and isn't afraid of the deep technical stuff that we have to convey. And they were like, okay. So we started looking at candidates. We started pulling people in from other tech accounts and I would talk to them and see what level of background they had and see if they were good fits for the, the practice. And we started doing these sessions and you're starting with people who they maybe worked on like some consumer tech or enterprise tech, but you start talking about data centers and firewalls and stuff like that. And you can see them just start to panic. Right. And so there was a day where I was talking to one of my junior employees and they said something about a server and not really understanding what it was. And so I was like, light bulb. Okay. So I got a server out of my server rack, took it to work, put it on the conference room table, pulled it apart and handed the pieces around to everyone so they could see what they were actually talking about when they were doing this work. Like it was, <laughs> it was incredible because you saw them light up. It was like, they'd been talking about servers and data centers and stuff like this for weeks or months and never actually seen one in person. And so for them to be able to like hands-on, like, oh my God, okay, this is a network card. This is a hard drive, blah, blah, blah. I was like, here we go. So that server ended up staying at work for like months while people were just kind of poking at it and asking questions. But it also kicked off this series of like seminars that we were doing. I was being called Professor Townsell at Edelman <laughs> because we would do, you know, these seminars about like, okay, what is a supercomputer? What does that mean? How is it built? How is it different from a data center? 
what does it actually do? We're saying that the supercomputer is curing cancer, but what does that mean? And so explaining things to people and being able to like convey the, you know, the facts behind it that, you know, if you look at a data center or a supercomputer, it's just racks and racks of equipment, right? It's not exciting to look at. But if you start telling people that that thing, that huge room of computers right there, what it's doing is simulating nuclear explosions and making them in different ways, or it's looking at the nuclear arsenal of the U.S. and figuring out how to safely store them without posing a danger to humans. It's running simulations over and over and over again to do that. Or this one's over here folding proteins to figure out how cancer treatments would respond. And so once you start like digging into the tech stuff and showing them what it actually means to a human, that's the part that got me excited. I loved teaching people. And the irony is that my mother's a teacher, my grandmother's a teacher, my great grandfather was superintendent. And so I didn't ever want to be an educator, but I ended up being Professor Townsville for Edelman for a while. So again, those weird things, they come back and you know, you find that there are these little hooks in your life where you picked up things along the way and then you're able to work them into your, your security marketing job. Love that. I'm very tempted to say, would you come back again and do an episode where it's just a crash course sure. <laughs> um, and bring Professor Townsell jacket and, you know, <laughs> play the full professor part because that's important, you know. Elbow patches, right? Yeah. Exactly. Between jacket and everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Yes, for sure. Maria, is it time for our game, which will be, I think, challenging? I uh, mean, I think it's going to be like literally Mission Impossible. Yeah. All right, everybody. So we are going to play our game now. So Dylan, we are going to guess what you would be if you were not doing what you're doing today. But we also have to exclude everything that you've already done. So it can't be sales and it can't be being in the military and it can't be being a reporter and it can't be being a musician. Also, yeah, it can't be retail. It can't be selling appliances. (laughs) So we just have to guess who wants to go first here. I'll go first. And you can be a journalist or a reporter. Gosh, Dylan, this is this is hard. By the way, this game is already really hard for me. I always lose. But most of the time lose. And so now like the loss is inevitable. I'm, but I'm just gonna go for it. Oh my God. <laughs> such a so dramatic. Such dramatics here on this show. She says this, but then when she wins, she makes this huge celebration. I know, I do. And then I text Maria after and I'm like, I won again. And she goes, You suck. No, I don't. <laughs> Listeners, I don't. I'm not that I'm not that much of a meanie. Okay, just go, Maria. Just okay. Go. So I think, and this is gonna be probably like really weird. Maybe you would be like a spy, like intelligence. <gasps> I did want to be that when I was going into the military. So that was, you know, originally I wanted to be military intelligence. So yes. maybe, yes. I don't know. That's, I feel like that's cheating. That's no, military. No, it's all, right. Right. all right, whatever. Yeah. Then I'm going to, all right, fine. Dylan, I think you would be a professor. Okay. Professor Townsell would be your real name and people would call you that and you'd teach people stuff and you're making a face. I could see that. I mean, okay. that would be going back to, you know, like continuing the tradition of my family being in education. I'm sure my family would love that. Is it my turn to guess? Yes. No, he wants to confess, actually. Confess. Okay. Honestly, I would say probably charter boat captain somewhere warm because I've never piloted a boat. I know nothing about, you know, sailing or nautical anything. So I would do one of my weird career switches and go and and just be somewhere on the water. This is this is why it's hard because you're you're doing (laughs) the weird career switches. And also like 28% of the time, I guess someone would like get on a boat and leave. And just be at sea. So it's not fair that I didn't guess that today. Dylan, who won out of both of us? 
<laughs> I would say you did with with the professor. I think that's I did the most realistic. Yeah. Yay! I'm hoping that you know I'm in a startup right now, and if things go well, then I'll be doing fine. I would be fine going to do a uh, professor, like adjunct professor or something, and testing it out a little while and seeing if it was a good fit. I've also heard all of the pitfalls of being an educator and all of all of the gripes from my mother and grandmother. So <laughs> there's there's a barrier right to entering the education field. But no, I think that's probably the most realistic, but I would still, I would still probably choose boat captain. Well, <laughs> Dylan, you didn't choose me. So there goes your chance of me actually introducing you to the Bravo TV show below deck and getting you your first chance at being on a boat. I'm not doing that anymore. So <laughs> well, if I come back and do a Professor Townsville episode, maybe I'll get your trust. <laughs> Dylan, this was such an amazing chat. Thank you so much for joining us today. Lots of learnings for our listeners. If anybody wants to reach out to you, are you okay being contacted? Where do they find you? Is it LinkedIn elsewhere? Yeah, LinkedIn. I think I gave you my social links that we can post in there, but Dylan at Armis.com is my email if anyone wants to reach out directly. Awesome. Thanks everyone for listening today. If you haven't yet, definitely follow us wherever you listen to your podcast. Give us seven, eight, nine, ten stars if you can find them. And tune in every Wednesday for a fresh episode. See you soon. Thank you, Dylan. <laughs>